0: Welcome to It's A Sign A podcast created to explore the unseen world of magic, symbols, spirit and emotion. Listen as we navigate the path to a deeper understanding of the inner worlds. How this can greatly inspire our everyday life and what tools we can use to help us along the way. Our intention with this podcast is to be the sign you needed to begin your own exploration within. To heal, understand and reveal the magic that surrounds you. Please take from this episode what resonates with your heart. I'm Helki and I'm here with Trey. Let's begin.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and holding with us while we've been kind of uh, been slightly erratic with our uploads. um, We've just kind of been busy with life.
0: Yeah, lots of trips away and sickness.
1: Yeah so we obviously if you tuned in last week you know we went to um, the beach a couple times and then a couple weeks ago we went to go visit my family in Italy um, and when we returned uh, we found out that our cousin actually had contracted COVID and Helki and I ended up getting it too and so we got put out of commission for like a week pretty much it was four to five days of like full-on unpleasantness I
0: feel like today is probably one of the first days where I felt more myself but yeah it really dragged out for me
1: yeah I am still I I know my energy levels are still not fully there yeah. like even when I try to stretch or do some yoga I kind of start to feel a bit dizzy and out of breath yeah. but um I've just been trying to take it easy and I've been doing some breath work to kind of recuperate some things but we didn't get it too bad we just got some fevers. I
0: don't know like it, I haven't been that sick in a very long time.
1: Yeah. But as long as I can. Remember. It was like a bad intense flu but we didn't get any coughing like my mom had to go to the hospital and get put on oxygen. So in terms of yeah. like how bad COVID can get, you know, yeah. we didn't, we I just do
0: feel like really short of breath. So i like, and yeah. um, I'm, I'm quite bunged up. So yeah. Apologies if you can hear that through the podcast, but we have had this topic in mind, like probably since near the beginning of, uh, doing probably. the podcast right yeah, but we've definitely. never come around to doing it yet And finally we're here yeah tackling the big one.
1: Ooh, this is literally this is probably my favorite conspiracy ever i wouldn't even call it a conspiracy at this point i just call it fact
0: yeah <laughs> it's yeah it's very big <laughs> yeah it can go many ways but i'm sure most people in the spiritual community would have heard of heard of
1: inner earth yeah so inner earth that is our topic today and it's also called hollow earth but i don't see it as like all of the earth in internally is hollow i you know i see it as kind of like there's another domain within the earth that is in a sub in subterranean like networks and caverns and stuff like that um And maybe it's even on a different kind of plane, slightly, you know, a slightly different density. Um, But you know, when we, but this topic is like so huge. When I started kind of diving in, uh, you know, diving into the rabbit hole and starting to like unravel all the evidence, I quickly realized that we would not be able to cover everything in one episode. Mm -hmm. So we are actually going to do a multiple... um, series episode on Inner Earth, because I really feel like there's so much evidence here and I really want to do it justice and get all of it out there. Um, But today we're kind of going to be focusing on um, less of the mythology of Inner Earth, which has been called many things over many years. Um, I think the most popular name for it is Agartha. And Shambhala, which Shambhala comes from the Buddhist, Mongolian, Hindu kind of religions, um, Tibet and everythings, uh, even predates Buddhism, predates Hinduism. Um, There's stories of a kingdom within the earth, an ancient kingdom. And we're going to go dive into that a bit later. Um... Actually, it'll be the first thing we dive into. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of start like scraping at the possibility of like, could there be an underground kingdom? Let's say, you know, an underground civilization um, that... So yeah, just for those who don't really know, I forgot to explain. For those who don't really know what Inner Earth or Garth is, it's basically the belief that there is a highly advanced, highly spiritual civilization that lives beneath the surface of the earth. And when we actually look you know, at kind of the science of things, the earth's crust can, is actually really, really deep. Like we can get up to f- seven kilometers deep of just crust. Like, try to picture that in your head, how much, like, a, how long a kilometer is. And we're going seven kilometers. Might be deeper. Might be deeper. Maybe I there's... No,
0: like that doesn't seem that
1: deep. Yeah. Maybe there's deeper um, parts that aren't the surface crust. Maybe mm-hmm. there's different levels of the crust. But um, when you think in terms of, like, how tall the tallest skyscraper in New York is, right? It's not going to, it's how, 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 like 98 stories, a hundred plus stories. That's around a skyscraper's height. Um, I don't know what that is in kilometers, but it's not, I, I doubt it would even be one kilometer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if we're thinking like, okay, there's seven kilometers deep that, you know, you could technically store many, 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 many skyscrapers on top of one another until you reach the bottom. Um, But there's also like, um, scientists are only really discovering what's going on, but there is a ocean, subterranean ocean beneath our crust that scientists found using like sonar. And it's bigger than all of our surface oceans combined. Which is crazy because if you think about like how deep the oceans go and how much of our surface of our planet is um, covered in ocean, <laughs> there is a subterranean ocean that's bigger than all of that combined. So, who is that? I can't remember. Yeah. But um, there's there they've also find found like huge caves and caverns and there's one in Vietnam which is this gigantic cave system that you haven't even begin starting to explore called the Hang Thung and these caves when they're kind of connected through their tunnels roughly estimated are 1.4 billion cubic feet large like huge and someone said that it would be like if someone found a lump on Mount Everest making it a thousand meters higher and any cave in the world would be able to fit comfortably inside this cave. Someone who, uh, Howard Limbert, who saw parts of it said is just outrageous in size. And there's like subterranean rivers that are millions and millions of years old that measure for miles, and there's just so much going on beneath the crust, beneath the surface of our world, that we haven't even started to explore yet. And although, as we'll come to see, some of us, some of more higher-up officials in the government may have already started to explore some of these hidden worlds beneath the surface. And we did, like,
0: very briefly at the end of last week, um episode about CERN, I came in with the conspiracy of the forbidden lands, which kind of touched. We touched a tiny bit on this concept, but whether it was not really so much it inner earth, but that there is these hidden
1: continents. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, hidden lands that was shown on the the possibly plasma moon. So and definitely check out last week's episode and i feel like this is something that's just been coming up a lot i noticed after we did that cern episode that um so many other creators were coming out with new information about cern really yeah
1: maybe we'll have to update it in a year or something and see see where we are if we don't uh Open a dimension into another universe. Because I think a couple of days or weeks after we made that episode, they actually turned it on for the third yeah, third time. That's
0: why loads of stuff was coming out. Yeah, it's really interesting synchronicity there. It's a, another sign, would you say?
1: Yeah, it was definitely a sign. <laughs> um, well, let's see, what were we... Oh, yeah, so in the last episode, you also mentioned a explorer named Richard E. Byrd, who we even included a clip of him speaking in the last episode, which I can insert here as well. Our guest tonight found out whether there was any land north of the North American continent. He made that first discovery flight and... I must say that Admiral Byrd, our guest tonight, is not only our greatest living explorer, but he's been an inspiration to countless Americans. Admiral Byrd, you've been to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Is there any unexplored land left on this earth
0: that might appeal to adventurous young Americans? Uh, Yes, there is. And not up around the North Pole, because it's getting crowded up there now, because they find out it's really usable, not only to live in, but militarily. But strangely enough, there is left in the world today an area as big as the United States that's never been seen by a human being, and that's beyond the pole on the other side of the South Pole, from Middle America. And it's a—I uh, think it's quite astonishing that there should be an area as big as that unexplored. Well,
1: that's a tremendous. So challenge. there's
0: a lot of adventure left down at the bottom of the
1: world. Well, He is going to make another guest appearance in today's episode and we will get to him a little bit later. But first, let's uncover the myths of Inner Earth. Um, And for today's episode, I I was thinking for each of these segments, I don't know, I think there's like there are going to be two or three Inner Earth series um, because there's just so much about it. But today we're going to go into the kind of mythology from India, from Tibet, and those regions. And there's basically a legend that predates the Hindu religion. So like almost over 5,000 to 6,000 years old, this legend is. And it tells of a beautiful island that lays in the center of the vast Central Asian Sea just north of the modern day Himalayas and within on this island is a race of godlike people with strange powers and they kind of isolated themselves from the rest of the world and did you know kind of stopped communication and they ended up having this beautiful society that flourished um, Uh, flourished in the sciences and the arts and they became extremely extremely advanced Um, this place was kept hidden from the outside world except to certain people like very spiritually awakened people humans Um, they say that the dalai lama is actually connected to this realm to this people the shambhala people and that there are certain monks and uh holy figures who are tasked with guarding the entrances to Shambhala and when you go to Tibet you most likely won't find these places but there are as we'll explore certain actual people that are alive still today who are guarding entrances and there are um, you know, they're very grand entrances that leap down into the earth. A lot of them have been caved in or blocked purposefully. Um, but the legend goes that this tremendous force was predicted to hit the world. And when we kind of look back in our history more than 6,000 years ago, what really happened around then is the story of the Great Flood. So presumably this Great Flood hit and this advanced society news happening Um, so the people of the island escaped by moving their society into tunnels and building their civilization under the ground so it's no longer an island but they created a subterranean kingdom uh, within the earth's crust leaving no trace on the surface but the entrances to their tunnels all over the world. So this place to many is known as Agartha and actually um, Shambhala, which is this city that we're talking about from the Hindu and Buddhist texts, um, is said to be the capital city of Agartha. And um, some say there are still entrances said to exist within India, Afghanistan, And that the region around there, Tibet, and when we're going to explore in another episode, we're going to dive into some of the entrances that might be even in Ecuador, in the South Americas and Central Americas. Um, So the land, the island, was said to be, you know, like I said before, in north of the modern Himalayas, in the middle of an ocean. But when we look at our geography of the world right now. There is no ocean north of the Himalayas, but what's there now are what's known as the Taklamakan and Gobi Deserts. And very interestingly is when we look at the peaks of Everest and the Himalayan mountains, um, there are fish bones, coral remnants and fossils of sea lilies scattered amongst some of the tallest peaks. And there's photos and evidence of this all on the internet for you to look up for yourself. So it's a little known fact that the Himalayas were once underwater before the massive geological event known as the Continental Drift where India collided into Asia, where and this is where it lies now. So. Who knows? The possibility of an island existing beyond the Himalayan mountains could definitely have existed in the ancient, ancient past before this giant flood, before this continental drift. And, you know, maybe it flooded some areas, but then water also receded in others. We don't know how this great event happened, but we know that it's through many different you know, religious and historical texts that this event happened. And I'm pretty much on the, the boat where it's like this happened and uh, it's not just a story in the Bible, you know. So um, there are this kind of story of an inner earth appears in traditions across the entire world. From Africa to Asia and to the Americas north south and central and some have claimed to have visited the civilization within the inner earth. The concept of Agartha is that it's an inner earth kingdom and there are caverns and tunnels linked to every continent on the earth. and. Now we're going to get into our first story and our first accounts of kind of more of a modern day claim to have visited the inner earth. And in 1920, Nicholas and Helena Rorick took a journey deep into the Tibetan Himalayas and they were funded by US government sponsors. And so the kind of official statement that they were telling the Tibetan and Indian kind of border patrol and stuff was that they were just documenting the ecological and cultural things, but the secret mission was that they were actually trying to find Shambhala. And Shambhala has played a role in nearly every Tibetan tradition and surrounding the geographic region of the Himalayas, even Mongolia, India, and China. And they all have mythological parallels to this this idea of a civilization with extremely advanced technology and so spiritually advanced that they're almost like a godlike kind of people. So the Roricks are really cool um, characters. It's a really cool family. They were well-known mystics with like intuitive abilities and even healing abilities, but they were also, Rorik was a writer and so was his wife, Helena. And um, Nicholas also was an archeologist and a painter. And they were funded by the US government to embark on a five-year expedition um, into the Himalayan mountains. And, yeah, so we'll, we'll kind of pause there for a second. So what do you think so far of... I when mean? was that? So this was in the 1920s.
0: Okay, so a real long time ago.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really cool, like, um, that they kind of got funded to do that, especially if they've got sort of, um, if they were, like, spiritually advanced people as well, it's interesting again, it sort of shows how the government, whether they they publicly really admit it or not, but they're often working with psychics and, um, you know, in those realms of astral projecting, and it's just interesting how even way back then, they were still you know, secretly working on this stuff. And then, like you said, this was secret. Like, publicly, they were claiming to be doing some complete, something completely different, right? Yeah,
1: and you'll see that a lot with, you know, government things, is that they have, like, a front story. This is what we're telling the public, and this is actually what we're doing in kind of classified things. And I just forgot to mention that Helena was also a Tibetologist, and a translator so she was fluent in Tibetan many languages and also a very um, kind of advanced philosopher and both of their theories and their documentation eventually evolved into theosophy where the founding kind of faces of theosophy are Helena Blavatsky, I forgot how to pronounce that name, and also Rudolf Steiner yeah, and Rudolf Steiner's. Um, I really like a lot of his work and he has some really cool concepts to explore. He's too.
0: really big in the spiritual movement and the new age movement and stuff. And
1: Yeah, he even has yeah. his own kind of school, Rudolf Steiner school, which is a mix of like spirituality and how to educate children by kind of fueling their creativity and everything like that. Yeah. So really cool person. Um, so, um, basically, the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures speak of Shambhala like it was actually a place that existed. So when, when they're talking about it in their scriptures, it's a real place. They even have like a specified lineage of 32 different rulers, and they even document that there was a population of at least 20,000 when the city was first built. And you can... It's recorded in this ancient text called the Kala Chakra Tantra, which can be found online. You can buy a book as well. And there's still people teaching from it today. So this is, you know, this is where Buddhism and Hinduism kind of took some teaching. They, they took this text, but it predates these religions. Um, so... It's believed that the civilization was also described, like we said, by a pre-Buddhist religion of Tibet known as Bon, which states that the entrance was west of Mount Kailash. And Mount Kailash is a very spiritual mountain in Hindu mythology as well. They say it was the home of Shiva. Oh, wow. And um, it's, it's also the crown chakra of the world when you look at things like that as well. The
0: Shiva is also the God mentioned last week, right? Yeah. God
1: mentioned last week. So um, most Buddhists today will say in the modern day, will say that Shambhala is exists within a purely spiritual dimension. But in the earlier traditions, they were not saying this is only a kind of higher dimension. They were saying it's physically accessible and it's just merely a fact of trying actually finding the hidden entrances. And, um, you know, the Himalayas are ex- very uncharted at this point in time. They're still quite uncharted. They're very inhospitable environments, freezing cold, sheer rock cliffs. It's very hard to traverse. Um, and at this time, the only people who were really equipped for such a dangerous mission was Nicholas and Helena Rorick. And um, so Nicholas kind of dressed himself in the robes of a Dalai Lama. So he, he had this nice white beard and he was dressed like a Tibetan monk. And many call him the Russian Leonardo da Vinci. He was really well known in his time and some of the paintings that he did of his inner earth experience and some of these godly beings that he met are incredible and definitely worth a view i think we should create a little uh photo album of them on our instagram Um, and i'll show some of them to you in a bit but it was in december 1923 of that nicholas rorick and his wife and son and a couple other people went on this expedition and they hoisted an American flag as they were walking through the, you know, their journey. And um, Tibet was kind of very dangerous at this time. It had just, it had a lot of civil war. There was a lot of bandits and stuff. Um, So it was not an easy task. This was like something that was completely like this was hard thing to do. You know, it it was not an easy um, trip. And a lot of people ended up dying on this trip as well. Um, So the trip, the journey spanned five years. They crossed 35 mountain passes, over 21,000 feet of elevation and 15,000 miles of uncharted roads. And by the end, five of the, I think, eight members had died.
0: What the hell? Yeah. Them and their son left.
1: Yeah. Just them and their son left. And the rest of them passed away. Um, So, let's get to the dirty details. So, Nicholas documented his journey in two diaries. And... One was scientific and one was highly esoteric. And he also created over 500 paintings pertaining to this journey. And unbeknownst to them, they were being followed by British, American, and Soviet spies until they disappeared. So they they were wandering through, I'm just trying to paint the picture for you. They're wandering through the Himalayan mountains being followed by spies and they're, they're supposedly getting closer and closer um, to Shambhala. Um, Nicholas can feel this and as they're supposedly getting closer, they're starting to see a lot more skeletons around, skeletons of animals um, surround, like littering the ground. Kind
0: of uh, reminds, that gives me that image of um, you know, a never-ending story. The movie when he's like on that that same kind, of, he's on, like on that long mission the whole
1: thing yeah. that,
0: and then he like gets to that point where there's all like those skulls, and he knows he's got to cross over yeah through the the gateway um, and he literally sees like someone try and cross and and be killed and. ...turned to ash and bone and... Yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's definitely like... An, an, ...kind of like an initiatory hero's journey... ...this yeah. whole thing. But as they started getting closer... ...they started documenting seeing... ...strange lights over their camp at night. And... ...as they grew closer... ...the scientific journal started... ...growing sparse. There were less and less... ...entries into the scientific journal but his esoteric one grew and the pages began to be filled with visions, stories, and riddles. And, you know, he said himself that as he went closer to the entrance of Shambhala, the vaguer his thoughts became because the aura of the city began to infiltrate his mind and it's a highly spiritual aura. And so his rational thinking started to kind of disappear, and he was just started being submerged in this very dreamlike quality, this, all these visions and spiritual um, experiences started happening to him. And it was actually because his wife had been contacted um, through telepathic instruction, apparently, to find the city of Shambhala that all of this even started and um so you can see that they're already kind of very tuned in and they were so convinced by this telepathic you know instruction that they set out on this journey and you you have to question what reason did these people these these you know they were very established they were at the height of their careers why would they decide to embark on a dangerous multiple year journey You know, unless it was something they legitimately believed in. Because this is very dangerous. You know, you if you're not going to get killed by the elements, you could be killed by bandits. You could be captured by Tibetan forces, by, you know, Indian forces. Like, anything could have happened. Um, And eventually, towards the end of their journey, um, they did get captured. But not before apparently finding the hidden entrance to... The kingdom of Shambhala, and in in um, Nicholas's paintings, he begins to start drawing these deities and the the named king of Shambhala, and so it was. Let me just quickly um, find something here. You wanna.
0: It'd be interesting to um, hear how they <laughs> got caught after. Is that on their way back? I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, so it's on their way back actually. So, the final some of the final events listed um, in his journal was that they started seeing flying crafts as they were, you know, traversing the landscape. And seven members of the crew witnessed this happening. And um, you know, this is interesting because in 1923, you know, this was around roughly 24 years before UFOs became something of public interest, before it kind of became like a hot topic, before all the US UFO sightings started happening. So this is, you know, predates all of that. And this is his own words from his journal. On August 5th, something remarkable. We are in our camp in the Kukunar district, not far from the Humboldt chain. In the morning, about half past nine, some caravanners noticed a remarkably big black eagle flying above us. Seven of us began to watch this remarkable bird. And at that same moment... Another one of our caravanners marked, there is something above the bird, and he shouted in his astonishment. We all saw in a direction from, the, from north to south, something big and shiny in the sky reflecting the sun, like a huge oval moving at great speed. Coming over our camp, it changed in its direction from south to southwest, and we saw how it disappeared into the intense blue sky. We even had time to take our field glasses and saw quite distinctly an oval with shiny surface, one side of which was brilliant from the sun.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: So here we have kind of this strange spacecraft or, you know, an unidentified flying object going through the sky. And they it was there long enough for them to even take out, you know, their field glasses and you know see it from a closer perspective and
0: it's interesting about the giant black eagle
1: yeah definitely <laughs> i wonder
0: what that was and maybe they maybe in inner earth they have like different creatures and animals like maybe like giant versions because remember we we heard about the uh the woolly mammoth thing
1: yeah, and we'll but see. You, you we'll see.
0: That, didn't you in the last podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the last podcast, but definitely we'll see later that um, another person, Richard E. Byrd, who claimed to have um, seen and entered inner Earth. Oh yeah, was, was reported was seeing mam- yeah. a woolly Mammoth. Yeah. Um, and when- maybe
0: that's like the giant eagle. As well, like.
1: Well, when like, we think that's about that's so like,
0: interesting to me. Like that—that's probably what stands out to me more, even than the alien stuff. Is like the thought of there being like these different animals. Like, what if there is dinosaurs there? or Yeah. The giant eagle. It could have been one of those like flying dinosaurs, or a dragon, like.
1: Yeah. No, definitely. If there's. That some... would be
0: so cool.
1: Yeah, like if you think about like Middle Earth, you know, from Lord of the Rings, it's, um, you know, that's a fiction book, but, you know, the author, Tolkien, he said that on his deathbed that all of it was given to him, channeled to him, but...
0: Just like J.K. Rowling as well. Yeah. He channeled Harry Potter.
1: Yeah. And so I'm I'm not going to say that, you know, Inner Earth is just like Middle Earth, but... You know, there are these giant eagles that Gandalf talks to. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time, sometimes fantasy fiction actually um, represents a lot of truth. And movies. And movies, yeah. So, after the event of seeing this, this is when Rorik disappeared. And despite being monitored by English, U.S., and Soviet spies they all completely lost track of him. Just and him? His, no, no, him and his family. Aye. And the only source during what, what we call the invisible year was in his diary where seven months were unaccounted for. The last three months were, they were in a prison um, and it was said that the expedition failed. Um, publicly when the diary was made but when the diary was made public there was a strange entry where an old monk so this was in the missing seven months an old monk led them to the back of a temple where an entrance was blockaded with stones and they forbade him from entering this entrance and when we actually look at what happened when they returned to America the U.S. government sponsors were actually extremely pleased about the results of the journey and so pleased that Rorick and his family were sent on a follow-up expedition from 1933 to 1935 and it was signed off by no one else but the U.S. president and funded by Henry A. Wallace who called Rorick his guru. So, you know, it's publicly said that the expedition was a failure, yet when they returned, the US government was really happy and funded another follow-up expedition. Um, and this kind of uh, starts their connection with the FDR government. Um, and again, when they went on this second journey, they disappeared for three months with zero record of activities. and. You know, it wasn't such a failure considering that Roosevelt, you know, the president, um, he signed something called the Rorick Pact in 1935, which is another connection to make a possible success. And um, when they did disappear, we found in his journal that Rorick was said to have been given an object called the Chintamani Stone and this is the eastern equivalent of the philosopher's stone (laughs) and we just kind of watched the philosopher's stone harry potter so the philosopher's stone is an you know ancient stone that's said to have magical abilities said to make people live longer Um, but the chintamani is described in many ancient traditions as like a physical it's kind of trap in shape and it's said to have fallen from a meteor that collided with earth from the constellation Orion. And a monk claimed to have touched this Chintamani stone and was given glimpses of si- simultaneously into the past and the future. And it's, lo- it's said to have three main fragments and the largest of the fragments is located in the King's Tower of Shambhala, which is in the center of the city. And so, the story goes that upon entering a monastery Nicholas saw a tall structure and an abbot, a Tibetan abbot, a monk walked up to him and gave him a black gem on a pillow and under a veil. And so this is kind of like a trapezoid in shape, so you know, sharp angled and he said to no he said to Nicholas know how to use the stone and not how to misuse it. And when Nicholas wrote about his examination of the stone, he guessed it to be made of moldavite. It was a giant chunk of moldavite. Mm. And he said it resembles an electric, this is his own words, it resembles an electric accumulator and may give back in one way or another the energy stored within it. For instance, it will increase the spiritual vitality of any who touches it, infusing him with knowledge or imbuing him with psychic abilities. On the stone was the engraving that said, through the stars I come, I bring the chalice covered with the shield, within it I bring a treasure, the gift of Orion. And Nicholas was said to have returned his fragment and after which the 13th Dalai Lama declared that all fragments of the Chintamani meteor must never leave Tibet and ordered them hidden in a secret location. Um, The theory goes that any of the fragments can be used to find and enter Shambhala. But basically, with the records we have, um, Nicholas and his family kind of claim to have entered the holy city of Shambhala, and even made paintings of them. And so here are a couple of the paintings he did, um, of his journey into the subterranean caverns. And he, there's these paintings full of crystal caverns with people and glowing lights. And he said he saw these deities within these godlike beings within this kingdom. And that there was a sky with no sun, and that the ceilings of the caverns disappeared at some point, and that they were, you know, using this um, form of telepathic communication, and so you can see. I will link all these paintings. They're really um, beautiful, but. He, you know, and he was saying as they got closer to the entrance, they, you know, started seeing lights in the sky, and that their environment started changing. And you know, there's very cool names for the paintings, like the Path to Shambhala, the Entrance to the Hidden Kingdom, like all of these things, and um, you know. I think the even though it was publicly stated that they failed, the fact that Roosevelt and the president, you know, even signed all these things honoring the Roricks and were very pleased with their expedition and sent them back. Um, And on his second journey, he was given this special stone. So... Yeah, that is the story of the Roricks, and...
0: But he didn't didn't really say much about being, actually going into the entrance. No,
1: so a lot of the documentation around this expedition has been classified, so all we can get are some of the released um, articles from his diary. Do
0: you mean that includes the the paintings because the paintings look more like from the outside even you know mm. did not look like I don't know It's you couldn't see like what inner earth looked like really it was just sort of like a, a guru on a on a mountain
1: yeah he didn't look like they he made any paintings of the the city itself it's a lot
0: of mountains
1: yeah. Yeah, a lot of mountains, ruins, and... Um, caves. Caves and deities. Um.
0: Yeah, I was sort of more imagining, like guess, the people there. Yeah. It'd be cool to know if he actually made it in or just to the entrance.
1: Yeah, and we may never know. Or someday some more documents might be released and you know, we might get some more information. But moving on to kind of our second story, this is probably the most um, famous and most has the most evidence with like first-hand accounts and complete military operations and everything um, regarding Inner Earth. So this one, you know, if that one didn't convince you, this one, Definitely might. So. I feel
0: like the first one it definitely holds a lot of weight to it for the fact that um, they was sent back and you know it obviously was seen as successful in some way. There was obviously something going on there with them disappearing for seven months. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely feel like that does sort of add to the belief, you know, of inner earth yeah.
1: for sure. Definitely. So, in 1946, there was this operation. Um, it was the largest expedition to Antarctica with over 4,700 men, 33 aircraft, 13 ships, and. Um, It was called Operation High Jump, and it was not a scientific expedition, but a military operation organized by Richard E. Byrd, who we will come to know later. Um, Before we get into that, there is a lot of conspiracy and facts leading to the Nazis and Inner Earth, and they kind of come up when we talk about this next um, this next segment. And especially because now we are moving our locations to Antarctica, the South Pole. And so basically there was, just to give you a brief summary because I didn't want to go too in depth into the Nazi stuff, but if you guys want to hear that, we can um, go into it, but there was basically the secret society called the Vril Society that was founded off this book that this this uh, man wrote, and in it he described an inner Earth civilization where they used this energy source called Vril, which was a limitless energy source, and um, the Nazis were very wrapped up in esoteric and occult, you know, knowledge and. They were said to have believed in this inner earth kingdom. And when the war ended and the Nazis had lost, they were said to have fled Germany and gone and basically created a base of operation within Antarctica, hoping to find access to the inner earth kingdom and... They developed a huge military base there, apparently, and we'll we'll start getting into some of that evidence um, as we explore this Operation High Jump um, through the US government lens. Um, So officially, uh, Operation High Jump was established as an Antarctic research base but it raises the question, why were so many military vehicles and weapons necessary for a simple establishment of a research base? And moreover, it was supposed to last eight months, but the, the expedition was terminated a month early for reasons that were never disclosed to the public, but we will find out later um, from it Richard E. Byrd's own private diaries. Um, so these mysteries lead to some strange theories Um, some of them being that Admiral Byrd's aircraft were said to have been shot down by unidentified flying objects and advanced weapons and it was when they got shot down that 48 hours later Byrd gave orders to cancel the expedition and withdraw Um, but yeah so basically they sent this huge expedition and to Antarctica military expedition. All of it, you know, declass, you know, classified and um, confidential. But what we do have is, at the same time, there was a British operation going on at the called code named Tabern, and it was executed by the Royal Navy and Special Air Service Regiment. And little is actually known about this regiment, the Special Air Service Regiment. It's kind of like a secret um, English uh, regiment. And all the documentation regarding them is confidential. But Operation Tamarin lasted between 1943 and 1945. And the purpose was to establish a permanent presence in Antarctica to monitor Nazi activity. So very interesting we have a released document and purpose from the the uk government um, under the code name operation tamarin where it was their purpose to establish a permanent presence in antarctica to monitor nazi activity hmm. so okay obviously there was had to have been some lead for this operation to go through that there must have been some sort of Nazi activity around Antarctica. Um,
0: Definitely.
1: Yeah. But here is kind of where the details get a little murky, because most of the documentation on Tamarin is secret. And, um, but some of the former members of the Special Air Service Regiment came out and revealed details of a battle that occurred in 1945 when um, they say, these kind of people who were part of it, say that Nazis discovered their secret bases and there were sieges that lasted many months. And after these sieges, the British scoured the land and found a secret subterranean base of Nazis and launched launched a counterattack. And there was a statement given in 2005 by the apparent last survivor of the siege. And he said, in quote, the base was in a vast underground cavern that was warmed geothermally. In the huge cavern were underground lakes. The Nazis had constructed a huge base into the caverns and had even built docks for U-boats. Hangars for strange planes and excavations galore had been documented. The power the Nazis were utilizing was volcanic activity which helped produce electricity. We were overwhelmed by the number of personnel scurrying around like ants. Huge constructions were being built and the Nazis, it appeared, had been on Antarctica for a long time. Oh... So this statement was given to James Roberts, who was a civil servant of the UK Ministry of Defense, who then released it to the public. So this is a pretty high-up guy. You know, he's the secretary, he's the UK's Minister of Defense, and he released it to the public, keeping the survivor's identity anonymous for their safety. Um, and so this kind of comes back. That maybe these Nazis were using this ancient Vril energy source, which is like apparently this liquid near infinite energy source which comes from the center of the earth, kind of similar to volcanic activity. Maybe, um, so it could have been that the Nazis learned how to harness power in the earth's core in this way.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how they're like underground lakes, rivers, is it?
1: Yeah. Um, really
0: interesting, but that is kind of. I've heard stuff similarish before, but more like I don't know dark, where it's like they're doing weird human experiments down there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's sort of. Like this underground, giant, ass cave with like blue. Blue light in, like people's skin mm. is blue or something. I heard crazy stuff, but yeah, that sounds kind of a bit similar because of the of the rivers.
1: Yeah, and it could it could be like I I decided purposefully not to go very into the Nazi stuff um, because I wanted to kind of focus on Richard E. Bird's account, but I kind of had to describe Operation High Jump and this other parallel UK operation that were going on because it was in the dates of High Jump where Richard Byrd had his experience with Inner Earth. Mm. Um,
0: and if Richard Byrd was shot down, um, it's likely it would be the Nazis, right? We already got other evidence that says that they're there, they have a camp there. And obviously, it's they, they don't want people there. Do they? Mm. They, are doing some something shady, something secretive, and yeah. So it really, really backs up. Like, cause you have his accounts of being shot down, it makes sense. It would be the Nazis, and now you're telling me about this other British, um, you know, case at yeah. exactly the same period of time. It just makes. A lot of sense.
1: Yeah and German ne- engineers are kind of known for having like this reputation with like big scientific leaps and experiments you know like you were saying before especially during World War II they did a lot of you know horrible experiments and it's kind of thought that the Nazis continued refining their technology you know when they relocated to Antarctica and one of this technology is something they called the D Glock, which was an apparently an experimental flying saucer. Um,
0: yeah and there's actually been a few uh, I've watched documentaries where they've mentioned that and there's like people high up like in the government who actually went in and saw um, like Nazi scientists actually building these things ships. Mm. UFO-style ships. Yeah. And these are legit kind of people that you think, well, why would they risk, you know, making themselves sound crazy?
1: Yeah. So Richard E. Byrd made a statement, um, and this occurred during an interview on the USS Mount Olympus, and it was published in 1947 in an issue of a Chilean newspaper called El Mercurio, and it's thought that it wasn't published in the, in the UK and the US because it was suppressed. But Byrd, um, he says this. He basically declared that it was imperative for the US to initiate immediate defense measures against hostile regions, he further stated that he didn't want to frighten anyone, but it was a bitter reality that in case of a new war on the US, um, they would be attacked by flying objects which could fly from pole to pole at incredible speeds. Admiral Byrd repeated the above point of view, resulting from his personal knowledge gathered both at the North and South Poles before a news conference held in the international news service." So. Bird's talking about some sort of flying object that can zip, you know, from one pole to the next really quickly. And he's worried, you know, he's worried that there might be some sort of other war. Um, And, you know, they could potentially be Nazi um, technology that they developed. But, um, But what I really wanted to get into was something called The Secret Diary of Admiral Richard E. Byrd. And this is really where the juice of inner earth comes from. So it's during the time period of Operation High Jump when he's stationed in Antarctica. And it was a flight log um, from a journal which surfaced in 1984. And this journal is surrounded by a lot of mystery and even deaths so when this got released people started dying Um, and it recounts his own encounter with an inner earth civilization so a little background on Admiral Byrd he was considered to be the greatest polar explorer of the 20th century and he conducted loads of flight missions to both the north and south poles in 1926 and 1929 and he was awarded with the medal of honor which is the highest honor of valor given in the US so he's really high, you know honored you know he's he's well known he was in a lot of newspapers and he's kind of this true american hero with like a really strong reputation for honesty and exploration and courage and so when these public statements that he made started coming out it really started raising the eyebrows of people because you know this guy was not just some schmuck on the street he was really honored in the US government system and very well known and in his after his flight to antarctica he was commented he basically commented on having seen and quote a land of blue and green lakes and brown hills in an otherwise limitless expanse of ice and after the, his flight to the arctic he said that i'd like to see the land past the north pole it is the center of the great unknown and if we kind of couple these statements with the warnings of ufo and high jumps we kind of start to see how this narrative gets pieced together But this isn't even the most intriguing evidence. Um, And most, to this day, most of the records of the flight logs from Byrd remain either lost or confidential. So um, we're only really basically grasping at the scraps that he left behind. And um, so the documents that we're about to kind of see now come from this secret diary of his where he documents descending into inner earth and meeting with a race of superior beings so the diary comes into the possession of this man named Ritter von X and this is kind of he's like this shadowy head of a secret sect known as the internet international society for complete earth interesting name complete earth like mm. I wonder what that means. It obviously means that we're maybe only aware of a partial earth and that there is a complete earth to know about. Mm. So the entire purpose of this group was to investigate the existence of an advanced inner earth civilization. Richard von X was an interesting character and he was actually a former Nazi born in Berlin and joined the German Navy in 1943. But he and he claimed to serve on this U on the U-530, which was one of the U-boats which kind of went to Antarctica. But he was captured by the Allies and his crew surrendered. And the basically the Allies forced him to participate in secret missions to retrieve like certain treasures within the Nazi um, camp. So he's kind of became this double agent and he was involved in many secret missions that to Antarctica. And basically he was the one who came out with the diary. Um, and he, Bird begins the diary with the following statement. I must write this diary in secrecy and obscurity. It concerns my Antarctic flight of the 19th day of February in the year of 1947. There comes a time when the rationality of men must fade into insignificance and one must accept the inevitability of the truth. I am not at liberty to disclose the following documentations at this writing. Perhaps it shall never see the light of public scrutiny, but I must do my duty and record here for all to read one day. Mm. And here we are, Richard Bird. We're reading your statement for the internet.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, in that interview that we watched of him, he he had such a kind energy. Like, a, he he seems a um, very honest kind of guy. Like, just giving him an energy read, like... I don't know. I, I feel inclined to believe his diary.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, he's, he's really, you know, honoured and well-known and just...
0: He has sincerity to him.
1: Yeah. So, the first half of his diary reads mostly in timed entries spanning hours to mere minutes, and it begins as a normal flight log but quickly takes a turn for the strange... So um, 1005 hours, I alter altitude to 1400 feet and execute a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. It is green with either moss or a type of tight-knit grass. The light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. And this is where it comes in. It appears to be an elephant. No. And there's exclamation marks in his account. It looks more like a mammoth. This is incredible. Yet there it is. Decrease altitude to 1,000 feet and take binoculars to better examine the animal. It is confirmed. It is definitely a mammoth. Report this to base camp.
0: Wow. Wow holy cow (laughs) yeah
1: half an hour passes and bird sees rolling green hills and and his external temperature gauge reads 74 degrees fahrenheit which is pretty hot for antarctica yeah you're not going to be getting that temperature normally in antarctica um at this point his radio stops functioning Another hour passes and he can see what seems to be a city in the distance and his writing becomes more frantic. At this point, he loses control of his aircraft and he hears what he writes. Aircraft seems light and oddly buoyant. The controls refuse to respond. My God, off our port and starboard wings are a strange type of aircraft. They're closing rapidly alongside. They're disc shaped and have a radiant quality to them. They are close enough now to see the markings on them, and the marking on it was strangely a swastika hmm. but when Richard Byrd was documenting this, he was very clear in stating that you know this was very this was not Nazi this was very separate from that and when we actually think about the swastika it's the literally one of the oldest religious um, and esoteric symbols known to mankind. So I have a little like um, uh, picture here that basically shows that in there's like a China a China version, a Christian version, Hopi, Tibetan, Islamic, Celtic, Greek, there's all these, even Jewish, Aztec, all these different versions of the swastika. Um, you see it in Hindu as well. And, you know, the Nazis were well known for have taken this symbol. And considering they were very deep in esoteric, you know, exploration, they took this symbol, you know, and twisted it around on its side and made it, something else you know they used it for their own cause but could they have been tapping into an ancient civilization and knowing that this symbol was of importance and just used it for their own cause so richard bird goes on to say this is fa- fantastic where are we what has happened i tug at the controls again they will not respond we are caught in an invisible vice grip of some type um so, this is where his live accounts stop, and it becomes a re- the diary becomes a recollection of his memories because he's no he can no longer record them live. Um, what
0: was the last line that he said on the live?
1: On the live was, "We are caught in an invisible vice grip of some kind." Wow. <laughs> so. Mic drop. Yeah. It could be, you know, that these inner earth beings are some ancient race and, you know, the swastika engraved on their craft could be like, you know, this is where the symbol originated from and where all these different cultures are taking it from. Um, Oh, no. So this is the final live log. 1145 hours. I'm making a hasty last entry into the flight log. Several men are approaching on foot towards our aircraft. They are tall with blonde hair. In the distance is a large shimmering city pulsating with rainbow hues of color. So that's the last log. So
0: they've crashed at this point.
1: Well, they haven't crashed. They've been...
0: Sucked down? They've
1: been taken down by some sort of invisible grip, maybe some gravity thing that... Or like a tractor beam. They've been Mm. captured and... You know, escorted. Isn't down. it
0: interesting though? When, if you think about the Nazi thing, how he was obsessed with with the blonde hair.
1: Yeah, he was obsessed with this Aryan race. This like.
0: Yeah. So like. God.
1: Yeah, he's obsessed with these blonde hair blue, blonde hair. Blue yeah, eyes. because
0: I guess in a sense, this this race is is advanced. Um, it's not. They're not the same as the blonde hair people and in here now, like you, they're like different completely. Yeah, that He me was of... still wrong for what he was saying. Definitely. But it's almost like the idea came from this like warped belief that there was some kind of connection with our people who yeah. look similar to their people. Yeah. When in fact they're a complete different
1: yeah type of human. And when we go into it, they're a very peaceful type of people. Yeah. And when we even look back at the, you know, Hindu and Buddhist writings it of you it, you makes you
0: think there's something there. Like definitely. Nazis maybe did go there, did meet these people, and yeah. it's like created this, uh, like, it's like messed up backwards version here yeah. when he came back here, you know.
1: Well they they might have had some access to some sort of esoteric texts or some sort of accounts of these beings, um, and you know, Hitler being the kind of screwed up guy that he was, twisted everything around, mm. and you know, just all the things he did were almost were the exact opposite of what this culture rep- really represented as we'll go into it, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, so it's at this time that they switch from real time logs to events written from memory, and basically there was also this this esoteric woman named Maria Orsic who is a Nazi part of this Nazi secret organization called the Vril Society, um, who worked with the Nazis and Hitler, and she yeah, she wrote about these tall blonde beings. Mm-hmm. So. Um,
0: and didn't she channel like blueprints of the ships and stuff
1: possibly yeah so these beings escort them to a glowing crystal city in the far distance in this city he is brought to a being called the master who introduces the inner earth people as a civilized as an ancient race called the oriani maybe related to orion's belt who knows or the constellation of orion They claim they are protectors of planet Earth and well aware of what goes on on the surface world and are constantly monitoring our activities and development. The master expresses this event was planned and Bird was chosen for his high trusted status in the military so that he may act as an ambassador and pass along an important message. This message was one of concern. Specifically, the Oriani had great fears of the invention of the atomic weapons. And this is what the master told Admiral Byrd. Our interest rightly beings, um, Our, our interest is in you beings, comes just after your race exploded the first atomic bomb over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. It was at that alarming time, we sent our flying machines to the surface world to investigate what your race had done. This is, of course, past history now, my dear Admiral Bull, but I must continue on. You see, we have never interfered before in your race's war and barbarity, but now we must, for you have learned to tamper with a certain power that is not for man, namely that of atomic energy. Our emissaries have already delivered messages to the powers of your world, and yet they do not heed our message. Now you have been chosen to witness here that our world does exist. Mm-hmm. So, after this warning was given, Bird and his crew members were associated, like escorted back to their plane, guided back to the surface of Earth, and then more than a month passes before Admiral, Burl, Admiral, Admiral Bird ends his diary with a final entry, March eleventh, nineteen forty-seven. I have just attended a staff meeting at the Pentagon. I have, started full, I have stated fully my discovery in the messages from the Master. All is duly recorded. The President has been advised and I am now detained for several hours, 6 hours 39 minutes to be exact. I am interviewed um, by the top security forces and medical teams. It was an ordeal. I am placed under strict control via national security provisions of the USA. I am ordered to remain silent in regard to all that I have learned on the behalf of humanity. Incredible. I am reminded that I am a military man and I must obey orders. So the first thing to note about this last flight log is that it's dated in 1947 which is also the year that Operation High Jump occurred at the South Pole. And the man behind the scenes of High Jump as well as Admiral Admiral, sorry, Byrd's direct superior was Admiral James Forrestal, who was Secretary of the US Navy. And um, it wasn't long after the abduction of Byrd that um, he ordered a premature termination of Operation High Jump. So he visits Inner Earth, and then, like, a little bit later, he is like, "Okay, terminate Operation High Jump. We're going back to D.C." And he goes and reports to Forrestal, who's his superior, who will we will come back to later because there's some interesting stuff with him. But two fun facts about. 1947. Mm -hmm. In July 1947 was the famous UFO crash that occurred at Roswell, New Mexico. So that was a huge one, you know, Mm -hmm. and it really, I think, spurred all of this UFO craze was the Roswell incident. Second in that same year, Harry Truman allegedly founded the Majestic 12, a secret group of military officials and scientists whose purpose was to control and monitor UFO agendas. So a lot of stuff happened in 1947, and it's interesting that they said, you know, we started sending ships out to monitor Earth and he comes back with this information in 1947 and then we have the Roswell crash in 1947 Mm. which um, we might go into later but basically they back they found a UFO crashed and they back engineered it and started developing the UFO and covered it up completely Wow! so let's get back to Forrestal so he was the secretary of the Navy and later the First U.S. Secretary of Defense, the first one ever, making him one of the highest-ranking officials in American history. He was also a founding member of the Majestic 12, which is this group designed to control and monitor UFO agendas. And he was kind of most remembered for his dramatic and sudden death when he leapt from the 16th floor of a hospital in 1949, just two years after Operation High Jump. So it's suspicious. You, exactly. When you look at the events um, and circumstances following up to his death, it really is suspicious. So just weeks before his death, Truman, the president, abruptly removed Forrestal from his office, ending his status as a government employee. Soon after, he suffered an extreme case this is what was reported of physical and mental exhaustion and couldn't move after which he was swiftly fa- flown from a Navy airplane to Florida, where he was diagnosed with severe depression. He was then flown to a National Navy Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, where he was kept against his will for a period of more than seven weeks on the se- on the 16th floor. So, big red flag. He's no longer a government employee, so why are they keeping him in a military facility? Mm-hmm. Um, and before he... You know, before he jumped from his to his death from the sixteenth floor, he left no suicide note but a half copied poem from an ancient Greek tragedy, and um, no evidence of this poem is anywhere. So we don't actually. It's just said that it was that he left that, but we don't have any pictures of it or anything, and. Even stranger was that the official Navy investigation only reported that he died from a fall from the window. There was nothing on what might have caused the fall. No mention of the bathrobe sash cord that the official announcement was said to have been tied around his neck. So it seems like he was really murdered. Someone choked him to death with a bathroom, like a Mm. bathrobe choked him and pushed him out a window. Um, But of course, you know, the Navy's not included any of this evidence in their statement. And probably one of the biggest um, proponents of his death was his own brother. So his brother, Henry Forrestal, who he released multiple statements and um, basically said that his brother was feeling good and talking about the future just days before the incident and Henry remarks that on the prison-like conditions of the hospital room, and how the staff constantly interfered in visitation and attempted to keep Forrestal isolated from everyone. Um, Henry was also troubled by how quickly the Navy officials insisted that his death was suicide, with no consideration of murder, and there was no police investigation most concerningly Henry was scheduled to escort his brother to leave the hospital just hours before his death so his brother finally gets the release hours before and then hours later his brother's dead and many think that the reason James Forsaw could have been assassinated was because he was preparing to release information regarding Bird's journey to inner earth or um, perhaps the Nazi encounter during Operation High Jump. So if the truth of Inner Earth was being covered up by the US and probably every major nation, then Forrestal would have been a prime target um, because you know he was a powerful, respected man. His word would have been taken, you know. He's not just some random person. And he was also Bird's direct superior. So he would have had knowledge of everything Birds saw and experienced. And get this. James Forrestal is not the only suspicious death connected to Byrd's expedition. In October 1988, the corpse of what appeared to be an old homeless man was found in a vacant warehouse in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, tests show that he had died of malnutrition, but more shocking was his identity. He was
0: the son, right?
1: The dead man was Richard Byrd Jr., who was a Harvard graduate, father of four, and only son of admiral richard Byrd.
0: yeah i remember reading about that
1: so how did his son die in a remote warehouse was you know it's a complete mystery and the events of the last three weeks of his life are completely unknown no one saw him no also one also
0: Byrd himself died suspiciously there's nothing mm. wrong with him and he died as a healthy man at 60 in his sleep which is yeah. very suspicious
1: so yeah, his son didn't have any problems with drugs or drinking, and he was by all accounts a stable and accomplished well-off man. And the only real clue is that less than a month before you know, junior, uh, Bird Jr. left his home in Boston by train, he was headed to a ceremony in DC to honor his father's accomplishments, but he never made it to the event. Bird Jr.'s, son, um, oh no, Bird Jr.'s sons um, said that Byrd Jr. idolized his father, which was Byrd, and he was drawn back to a certain expedition in the South Pole constantly. He would always talk about this expedition to the South Pole that occurred in the 1940s, in which he accompanied his father to Antarctica. Keeping this in mind, it was only four years before Bird's mysterious death that Von X released the secret diary of Bird to the world. So is it possible that Bird Junior was the one who gave Von X the secret diary of his beloved father, this father that he idolized, that he loved a lot, and, you know, was revealed this diary that revealed the journey to inner earth. Um and like After all, who else but Bird's son would have possession of such a private and monumental document? Mm. And it's likely that his private diary was the only thing that he was allowed to keep. Uh, Or maybe he wasn't even allowed to keep it. Maybe he held it secretly Mm. and passed it on to his son. And we might have to thank Richard Bird Jr.'s son um, for the the exposure of these logs for it's probably him, you know, who else right. would have had that. So yeah, that wraps up the stories. Well. It's a big one. Yeah,
0: it's a long one. Almost an hour and a half. Where I need I need touch the Yeah. And you well, said that there's a lot more feelings. There's to a
1: lot into. more, yeah. There's a lot more and um, I think next session we'll be going into um, some of the Ecuadorian evidence for inner earth and a bit more um, into some of the myths of Agartha but for now we'll leave it at that and so what do you think about R- Richard E. Byrd's statement I really believe him
0: I really believe him too like the first one that I feel like it's i I wanted to believe it, but it wasn't like, I don't know, detailed enough. It, yeah. it sounded a lot like a lot of these things you hear, like gurus and people like that, like yeah. retellings of, of of their spiritual journey. But his is just so legit. And, yeah. Um,
1: There's so many high involved people. There's so many yeah. events that are surrounding this time, like... It's just evidence, and after it's definitely
0: evidence. not like a vision. It's like yeah. obviously something that's happened. The way that it's like logged while he's flying, it's just insane. And yeah, uh, and I love that he actually gave more like description. Like even in that interview when he was, t- you know, on our last episode that we listened to, and he was like, you know, it's there's undiscovered lands. You know, uh, lands as big as the americas you know like it really sort of gives you the real visual of everything and it was almost just like he sort of passed a certain point and the lands just changed it weren't just like a cave yeah um i don't know like it I just I really like the vision that he gives for inner Earth as well. Like it really resonates with yeah. with my belief systems. It feels more like an extended landmass rather than just this thing that's happening underground in tunnels. Yes,
1: but the thing like, is, he did say that he could he couldn't see the sun anymore. Yeah. So it is... because
0: it's it's it is I. I think that makes sense too. Like if you don't, if you can't see the sun anymore because you're going far beyond what what we know, right? Far yeah. Beyond Antarctica.
1: Yeah, and... Yeah. I like to
0: think of it more like that. Like it's... It obviously I don't know, you know, but I like to think of it more it, like this other world. Like it's like opening up into another world of this inner earth rather than it being like this hidden actually underground in tunnels Mm. Uh, I'm sure parts of it are
1: yeah but you when it's when they really talk about inner earth underground they're talking about it underground but it always has a sky and an atmosphere and like a biome like a natural biome with lots of light but they say um that they're one of the technology they may have developed is an artificial sun or some sort of spiritual or like, you know, scientific energy like a source. Sun. Yeah. And we all, when you also go a bit more into the myth of inner earth, you also start hearing about the black sun, this purple sun, um, that emits like ultraviolet, uh, rays. And it's, it's like purple, you know, um, instead of the yellow sun that we have so that's that's another myth that comes out that the black sun exists within inner earth but yeah really really cool stuff and yeah when i imagine inner earth it's i you know i could see how there could be maybe subterranean entrances but it almost does feel like this realm um it's like another realm but you know within ours and so that's why that we had it has a sky and everything, but if you think like, what if there is some sort of cavern that's underneath the earth with its own complete biosphere? Um, because you know, you if you're having kilometers of space beneath the crust, like, uh, like I'm, I'm curious. Like,
0: do you know like how I kind of see it? Is like I think that. You know, for example, there's the Nazis created the base on Antarctica, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely believe they did. And that's where I think this whole... They get the whole idea of everything in the first place with their logo. and Yeah. Um, so I feel like maybe like the Nazis have created like underground bases up there right Mm -hmm. and they're trying to dig to find this place because maybe some some of them did find it originally or something and that they can't find it again you know how bird he was kind of sucked into it like he was allowed to come and see it like they can choose to mask their their world or not on or allow people to see it yeah sort of like and i think that um some that there's like a people get a lot of information of what they think is inner earth is really what like humans are doing in these underground bases up there in order to try and find the real inner earth um mm. because you you hear like you know there's a lot of psychics and stuff here like you know astral over there and stuff and they say that it's the the blue uh, they have the blue light in there. They have their own inner sun. They have, they're they doing a lot of um, inhumane human experiments done there. In the like, earth? Yeah, this is what some people have. Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe they're getting a mix of things. Maybe but they're getting I like don't a mix of know, m- but what I'm saying is oh, I, feel, the Nazi I stuff feel like the that
0: is. The and that type of inner earth that you hear about is mm. actually what us humans are doing underground, mm. like the Nazis and things like that. Whereas the real inner earth is this place that Bird spoke about, where it's more like a realm that they can choose. It's here, but it's like they can kind of mask themselves or or not, yeah. like whether they're seen or not. And I feel like the 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 bases, the military bases whether they're Nazis or just military, whatever. Yeah, they're, they're, they are doing stuff underground in order to try and find it, to have access yeah. to this. But it, but they'll never have that because, um, the like I said, I think the real inner earth can choose to be discovered or not.
1: Yeah. There was this really cool um, anime that I watched called Agartha. Oh, no, it was called The Children uh, Who Chase Lost Voices. Um, but it's, it's basically about an inner earth, uh, civilization with all these strange creatures and strange inventions, um, like,
0: and base,
1: yeah, there's all this, um, it's basically, they go into these subterranean caverns and there's this ancient gate that you have to unlock with this special, um, kind of crystal key and... Um, but then once it op- once the gate opens, then it's like another world with a sky and everything. But before, they had to go down into these tunnels and caves. But then once they found the gateway, when it opened up, it was like a whole new world you mm. know, within. And yeah, who knows how the reality and physics and science of it could work, you know? Um, and... When we look at the really old indigenous tribes and people they always said that the gateways were under the earth so but it was always like they were gateways or entrances but um and when we go explore into the ecuador for our next episode we'll really start to see more first-hand accounts and legends and myths around this and people who actually you know found these vast treasure troves within these subterranean caverns and um, depictions of deities and paintings um, as well so really excited to go into that one
0: yeah so so interesting
1: yeah so let us know if you have been convinced yet um, and if not that's okay because I've got a lot more uh, I've got a lot more evidence and a lot more stories to account for so stay tuned for all of that and yeah I just really love the possibility it just makes me feel so good to have the, the, to feel the possibility of this inner earth like it really feels right inside me and yeah. Um, uh, yeah so shall we anything else to say about inner earth or do you want to transition into
0: no I, I'm, I'm excited to hear more but I do feel like that's like probably the most exciting sort of evidence that you can lay out about um, inner earth and it does just really get you thinking like like with me it makes me um, feel excited like you and I definitely like to imagine like all the different possibilities there the creatures um, the different types of beings I think um, there's a lot more to it than, than we're even hearing about I think mean, there's a lot more types of people and, um, and yeah. Personally, for me, I, I found the animals and the different beings interesting. It makes me think, well, that's just what you're seeing on the surface level. Like what the hell else is there, mm. you know?
1: And when we actually think about like, it just kind of reminded me of um, the Norse view of cosmology of our world and you know they said that there was multiple layers and realms to the world and i think um i can't remember which one we were part of it might have been midgard but you can see there's like a levels with different spheres and planes around it yeah and asgard was the higher realm and look at the tree on asgard there's a giant black eagle Oh, yeah. On the top of the tree. And so the different realms, like, um, I think or had, like, um, giants and things like that. But Asgard was said to be the highly advanced um, civilization where the gods came from. And Midgard was where we stood. But it's like, to have a, a kind of, like... A more four-dimensional perspective towards the world and having like okay maybe we share different realms or maybe we live on the borders just like how we have countries um, physically in the third dimensions we have country borders that maybe we have four-dimensional realm borders within our earth you know that it's not just this that we don't just exist on this flat crust on the surface, but there's overlapping realms and dimensions of other planes of existence and worlds that are right living with us side by side. So what do we get?
0: So we are using um, the Sasaburi to tarot and came out together was the Two of Wands and the Ten of Wands. So both like the ones it's interesting they're both ones because I always think of like ones is that like explorer energy, you know, and we've been talking this episode about explorers. It's that passion to go out and seek um something you're passionate about and um it's very kind of like a physical going out there and and the two of ones it's that um that that energy of like, I kind of have everything, um, I, I sort of, I, have, I know everything I know here. I need to go out into the world to expand, to find something new, to seek something different. Um, but then with that ten of ones energy, um, it's kind of like, it, the pitch is quite dark, isn't it? yeah it's not normally that dark the 10 of wands energy mm. um, but i think that sort of shows that like you you know there is these consequences as we see what happened with like all those suicided people um, yeah. with, uh, around the bird case like the killed Richard for the knowledge yeah, they like that there's there it kind of comes with a heavy burden and he's got all these sticks 10 sticks on his back and he's kind of you know holding that weight holding that burden so it's like yeah like we can go and we can seek and we can explore more um of the unknown but like often in this world that can come with a consequence and Mm. with a heavy burden and I don't know how you feel like that I feel like that more is sort of just speaking on, on this topic itself you know like um even if we allow our minds to open up even to, to this concept and this belief, you know, how that can sort of then um, begin this path of questioning many things and beliefs mm. you might be holding and um, sort of opens up that gate and, that, and even that alone can can become a burden on us think um the message for the listener I guess would be to have awareness around that I don't know what would you say (laughs) like I can see that that's sort of what the cards are meaning to me but but what it would mean on a personal level yeah for us or the listeners I'm not sure
1: for me it's just like Keep expanding with your exploration of and knowledge and, um. You know, it seems like oh, sometimes you can be reprimanded by the world, or you know, seen as crazier as an outsider for holding certain beliefs or ways of thinking. But to stay strong in it, and you know, the mainstream will never believe the like real truth. You know, especially when we're all being fed so many lies but I, I, I did pull up one thing that I was like okay what the heck is the e black eagle in Indian mythology because it happened around my, Mount Kailash right the black eagle and the black eagle now is on that Norse tree of life of the mm-hmm. nine worlds so Garuda in Hindu mythology is the black eagle and the mount of the god Vishnu And I think Vishnu is the creator or the preserver, one of them. Yeah. And in the Rig Veda, the sun is compared to a bird in its flight across the sky. And an eagle carries the ambrosial soma plant from heaven to earth. So soma, for those who don't know, is this psychedelic kind of plant that the sages in India took. So they would drink the soma which is like the nectar of the gods, basically, and go into these altered states of consciousness for weeks sometimes, where they would have people like um, feeding them, giving them water while their bodies were in meditation, in these deep meditations, and then sometimes they would give them more soma, and <laughs> the basically the whole Vedas and the Sanskrit language was said to have come from these sages who were vision questing and all of that. And that the Sanskrit language was the, the language of the gods that they brought down from the heavens. And so that's what the Soma is. And the eagle is apparently the carrier of that Soma plant. Oh, and when wow. you when you look at um,
0: the eagle or the black eagle, that black eagle. Oh.
1: And when you think about, um, you know, the first people, uh, the Roricks, you know, Nicholas and Helena Rorick, the set, when they were saying, when around the time when they were seeing the Black Eagle, they were being, you know, so, loads of visions were coming through, and, you know, their esoteric diary really started to be fill, filled up, fill up.
0: There you yeah. go. Another card that I pulled from the Oracle, the Witch's Wisdom, was interesting the Ancestors' Remembrance card. Wow. And it's got like, and skull, like, skeletons. Yeah. Um, which we were mentioning earlier. Yeah, with the Rorick yeah. expedition. And then also it's got, like, sort of a peek through a cave window where it's yeah. got, like, a almost, like, you know, a new world kind of yeah, vibe through there.
1: It's like this sparkling skulls with treasure in this cave and then there's a gateway in the cave and it's showing, like, this green world with um like standing stones you know like the stone circle kind of stones through and the sun peeking through that's really cool that's just like what we were talking about (laughs) yeah and it's like it, it feels like the the people of agartha the people of inner earth are in a way our ancestors and it's just a reminder that You know, it's like a little sign that, yes, remember. can keep remembering. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty.
0: All right. Yeah, it's been been a great episode. We hope you guys enjoyed. And um, promise to keep up more regularly now. Now that we're back, we're going to try and be a bit better (laughs) at even if we do have trips away and stuff we'll try and be more organized around it because we really do love doing the podcast um, and sort of exploring all these you know different topics and stuff so it's fun for us and we hope it's fun for you guys
1: yeah great. thanks
0: to Trey for his extensive research yeah carpal tunnel multiple times (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he, it's been two days of, of research so you know a few hours each day obviously but yeah. um, it's been quite intense and um, yeah it's much appreciated babe
1: oh yeah I love I love doing it I love diving into the rabbit hole and um, finding all sorts of stories and evidence to pull from and yeah if you guys haven't already check out this guy called Mr. Mythos on YouTube. He's a great source of all things conspiracy and mysterious esoteric and he's a big inspiration for me in terms of diving into the rabbit holes of things. So yeah, Um, thanks so much for tuning in and we will see you soon and uh, it'll be, if we don't take a, if we don't like skip a week in terms of like what we put out in terms like, oh, are we gonna do the Inner Earth part two next week or are we gonna wait maybe a bit? Maybe we'll so have like we'll a,
0: see. A, we'll see how inspired yeah. we are. But maybe we will have a little break, do do a different topic, switch it up, and then come back for part two of Inner Earth. Yeah. We'll see. But um, you will be getting part two of Inner Earth in the next few episodes i'm sure
1: definitely all right everyone thank you so much really appreciate it yep yeah (laughs) both imagine anyway okay let's uh end it there have a good week okay and we'll see you next week all
0: right
1: bye bye